Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, authors, theologians, political pundits, media people, and assorted others about the lens through which they experience life. My guest is Karen Wright Marsh. She is the executive director and co-founder of Theological Horizons, a university ministry that has advanced theological scholarship at the intersection of faith, thought, and life since 1991. She directs daily programs, writes resources and curriculum, teaches weekly classes, mentors students, leads the staff, and speaks at retreats, churches, and campus ministries. She's also written a great new book, Vintage Saints and Sinners, 25 Christians Who Transformed My Faith. We had a great conversation. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. I give you Karen Wright Marsh. Karen, welcome to the podcast. My pleasure to be here, Scott. So I just got to witness your vintage gathering and you studied a few, you read a few passages from Kierkegaard and you closed with a prayer that talked about walking and the significance of walking. So I just want you to know, according to my iPhone, that I have taken 8,071 steps today. So that's the equivalent of 3.9 miles. Kierkegaardian, maybe not, but at least enough for some fitness points or something like that. So are you going for 10,000 today? I, you know, I have ADHD, so I pace incessantly. So usually I cry, like my wife. Oh, I mean, it's it's not even the end of the afternoon. You, you've got this. No, my wife is, her coworkers are astounded by how many steps I, like, I do just because I'm a pacer. So, so that, like, Good. I like Good. that. You and, I like you that. and Surin. <laughs> yeah, I probably don't walk as much. I, I probably don't cover as much geographic ground as it sounds like you did. But yeah, all day long he walked and walked, so. So you've written, you've written this great book, Saints and Sinners, uh, Vintage Saints and Sinners, 25 Christians Who Transformed My Faith. Now, this actually came out of the ministry that I sort of witnessed via Skype, where you gather college students at UVA, right, right, and weekly you kind of you eat together and read some classical Christian text and talk about it. That's right. This That's sounds right. like a really wild, innovative ministry model. <laughs> Well, you know, it happened not really by accident. I think I was avoiding teaching a Bible study, actually, because <laughs> I had a, a student about 13 years ago who said, would you lead a Bible study for me and my friends? And I was a little intimidated by the idea of teaching a Bible study and being this great authority on on the Christian faith. And I kind of dodged it by saying, well, let's just read some texts from the tradition and see how that goes. So I started out using some books by Richard Foster called Devotional Classics and Spiritual Classics, which which really helped kind of form this whole this whole approach. But what I found year after year was the readings needed to be shorter. And I also really wanted to focus on issues in the immediate. So as as things would come up with students, I would think about passages or texts or even particular people from the faith who spoke into that moment. So it's been really a wonderful organic group project that we've done together. And now there's no preparation. This young woman who was walking by, walking down the street, saw our sign today and just walked in. She'd never been and she she had lunch with us and, and joined the conversation. So that to me is the perfect um, rationale for why I do it the way I do it, which is come one, come all, sit down, have some lunch. We're going to read an interesting text from a person you may have never heard of, and we'll just see what they have to say and how we respond. And there's no right answers. There are no wrong answers. You don't have to have faith, uh, or you can be in transition with your faith, or you can be grounded in your faith. 
it's just whatever you bring into the room is, is welcome. So, uh, it's been, it's been great. It's a growing, uh, flourishing, uh, little group of people. You're going real vintage. Not only are you reading classic texts, you're bringing them with street signs, you know, not Twitter, not Instagram. You're bring, you're all, all vintage all the time. Well, food is, you know, you got to be there in person. So uh, every week we have a homemade meal and that that definitely um, is old school, old school cooking. Do you find that with with reading classical texts like that, that aren't necessarily anybody's sacred text or scripture? Is that easier if somebody is uncertain about where they are on in relation to their own spiritual and religious identity, because like, hey, I'm not coming and arguing with the Bible or the Quran. I'm ar- I'm just kind of dialoguing with somebody that's a figure from history. Absolutely, I think when we read scripture for as as people of faith, Christian faith, when we encounter scripture, we bring a certain reverence, which is which is right to do. And some people push back and ask questions. Um, but I think for many people, there's a level of intimidation there or even distancing. But when you read something from Martin Luther, uh, you know, he's just a guy and he had plenty of flaws when you know his story and, uh, you can really challenge him. You can interrogate the things that he says. It's not sacred. It's, it's to be engaged, to be challenged. Uh, and it's, uh, it, it, and I often, often will say that with students is, you know, you may think that Augustine is all wrong. So what do you think? And why do you think that? So I think there's a real open invitation to engage with the text and to engage with the stories of these people. Um, yeah. So there's a real openness I find, um, with this, this, these kind of readings. Has this, has the nature of your group's meetings changed at all since the protests uh, several weeks back in Oh, Charleston. absolutely. What, yeah. how, what's that been like? Well, I'll say that it's really hard to know when you bring a group of 70 undergraduates together where they're coming from. You know, were they here for the protests? Did they witness the violence? You know, we were, our family was in the middle of it. We literally experienced it in our bodies. You know, some students were very um, immediately shaken and distressed by it. I think some recognized that it had happened, but they kind of wanted to get on with the year and their academics and their own priorities. So, you know, I'm I'm constantly reminding myself that my trauma or distress is not necessarily their trauma or distress. So I want to always be open to whatever's happening in the room. The same thing after the election in November. Um, there was all kinds of responses. So with that in mind, my approach is to bring in these vintage Christians who I think speak to the moment. So Sophie Scholl being one, so she was a young German woman who was 12 years old when Hitler came to power. And when she was at the University of Munich, she opposed the Nazis for real uh, with her brother. They formed this little group called the White Rose and distributed pamphlets secretly. They wrote on walls at night and they were caught and they were tried by the Gestapo and they were executed by guillotines, just horrific. But they did it out of their own faith, their own faith in Jesus. They they, they in, engaged as Christians, which is our perspective in this group. Uh, what is the Christian response? Um, so, you know, I bring her story in the room and I, and I tell her story. And then I ask the question, you know, what is the great wall? She talks a lot about chipping, you know, knocking a chip out of the wall. What is the what is the big wall that faces you right now? And just by asking that question and stepping back and letting the students identify these struggles, these issues, these traumas that they have, um, 
that's a way into those conversations without me presuming how they feel or what they think. Um, but I do feel very strongly that the voices, the, the, the figures that I teach have huge significance. You know, Howard Thurman, he um, influenced Martin Luther King Jr. He met with Gandhi in India. A lot of students don't know him. Uh, Amanda Berry Smith, she was born a slave, African-American woman. You know, so when I bring Amanda Berry Smith in the room, all the students of colors or underrepresented groups, they see that this, that, that I am presenting her as a saint, as a person worthy of respect and a listening ear. So, you know, when when issues like this come up in Charlottesville, uh, as we had it in August, which was such a horrible trauma, um, to me, it's just an ongoing struggle to listen carefully to what's coming, what's going on. And everyone at the university experiences life here in different ways. For many students of color, the events of August were no, no big surprise. This is the University of Jefferson. You know, we can go on and on about it, but I've always tried to listen and learn from many, many different figures from the faith and not just stick with the white guys. <laughs> <laughs> what, what do you think that the media missed? What are we like people who are outside of the immediate area? You know, the, uh, my friend and colleague David Zoll wrote a very moving piece about how it's just hard to talk about this when you're in it. It's very different. Everybody's talking about it. That's not in it. Like what, what, what did the country miss that you think that, that if, as a resident, you see, are, are there glaring omissions that that you see in the coverage of the story? Right. Well, I'll say, first of all, that all the images that you saw, the worst of it, that's how it was. I think many times in the media, you see a story and you think, well, they're just picking out the the most violent. The, the worst clip and play it on the loop. worst. Clip. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. No, it was it was mm-hmm. horrible. It was I saw people getting beaten up in front of me. You know, Mm. my husband was tear gassed. It was that crazy and that violent and that dark and that frightening. There was, well, your husband was, was he part of the protest or was he part of the anti-protesters? Well, that's the, you know, anti-protesters. We were, this is our town. We were downtown. uh, So he wasn't even actively engaged in protesting against. We were simply present with our people, you know? Yeah. So um, it, it was all around us. So I would say the media got that right and showed the violence. I think I I was so aware and of the the clergy who participated, who stood together, uh, people in our community who showed up in opposition. Not as you know, you can call us counter protesters, but we were present in our community yeah. at our town. Um, you know, the university students who were at the university when those uh, the white supremacists came through with the torches. They were really badly, badly injured. Um, people are still suffering their injuries that they they experienced on that day. You know, people who just happened to be in the path of that car, you know, or kids who got punched by a white supremacist. I think the media doesn't reckon with how widespread mm. the damage mm. was, you know, and it's 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 a surreal thing, of course, because everybody's like, it's not my Charlottesville. This is not my town. But in fact, I think on the other side, we have to recognize that this is part of what, who we are as a country, as a town. Um, and these conflicts, they weren't all from the outside. I mean, the worst of it was, but it's such a complicated thing, uh, I think. And, and it raises a lot of, um, opportunity, I think, to sit with these questions and really listen to members of our community to speak into, you know, what, what was here all along, you know, what, what were we all missing, uh, in, in thinking about August 12th? 
Yeah, and I read some pieces about how, for some reason, Charlottesville is kind of targeted by white supremacists because it's this, there's this Southern legacy and yet it's this kind of, there's a lot of transplants. It's this cosmopolitan sort of, it's sort of this blue city, right? With all this sort of red state heritage, this kind of, you know, red state's probably the wrong word, but the sort of, you know, the Confederate heritage, heritage. I mean, that's that struck me as really wild to live in the midst of that, that this is kind of targeted as a symbol. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, and it was sort of building because we've had this debate about the Confederate monuments, but then it spreads. I mean, when they showed up on the grounds of University of Virginia that night, um, I mean, the symbolism was so strong to see Nazis, white supremacists, you know, taking over our someone, the president of the university even referred to it as sacred space. Uh, and I thought it was a good response. Somebody said, well, the slaves who built the university didn't consider it sacred space, but it is a sp- it is a place that is revered as, you know, part of our heritage as Americans, as a democracy. It's a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Yeah, it's very progressive. Um, quality of life for many people is very nice here. So, yeah, in a way, it was kind of a, sadly the perfect place uh, for them to to make a showing. Because and it just shattered so many illusions or images we had of ourselves. And, and so what a, you're saying for the record is on Friday night yeah. when they come with torches at the university, you didn't see the nice people on that side. <laughs> when, when the president said there no. were really decent people. And I, I mean, I find when decent people in a protest and Nazis are alongside, they're, oh, wait, this isn't a nice protest. Well, like, there's Nazis here. Like, <laughs> such a strange no, comment. No, 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 no. <laughs> No. And, you know, oh, there's so much we could say. But, you know, I know that even the the Antifa, Antifa young kids who were here, they saved some lives that day. You know, mm. they saved Cornell West life. They saved some friends of mine who are ministers who are on the front line. So we can debate approaches um, and violence. But, you know, there were people here defending nonviolence with sticks. And and that's just how it happened. Mm. Mm. You write in your book about Bonhoeffer, and your husband's actually a Bonhoeffer scholar. Now, in the, in our current political time, which wherever you are on the political spectrum, is seems unprecedented and strange, and often very disturbing. Everybody, there's this sort of invoking repeatedly of the confessing church of Bonhoeffer. Is that how do how do you receive that as somebody who's lived a life? sort of thinking about Bonhoeffer, who who is appreciative of his work, who, you know, his work has shaped both you and your husband. Do, do you think that stuff is, is it like too soon? Is it appropriate? Is it miss, is it, is that misappropriating a legacy? I mean, how do you, how do you, how do you find yourself reacting to that kind of, mm-hmm. I'm sure you've heard people invoke this. Sure. I mean, I think Dietrich Bonhoeffer speaks to every moment. <laughs> I'm a fan. Um, I mean, his witness was so complex and so profound and so um, important. I think what we don't want to do is make an evangelical Christian out of him. Um, That's what really offends me to think that we know what Dietrich would say today. I mean, I think what I bring of Bonhoeffer into this moment is he was a person who lived his faith, who gave his life out of faith and also out of love and compassion for his fellow humans. You know, he did what was right. He came back from New York, uh, back to Germany when he, he knew he would, um, probably die, um, 
because he had to be with his community and his brothers and sisters. I think Bonhoeffer, we know that he respected and embraced all people of goodwill. You know, he wasn't exclusive. I think he teaches us a lot about um, respect and love of the other, you know, not just people who look like us, not just people who go to church with us, but people who are engaged in these struggles for righteousness and freedom. Um, he was a very cosmopolitan, worldly, quirky person, you know, who grew up in, in, in an incredibly um, educated, privileged family. And he he gave all that up for um, for the common good. So, I, you know, I don't I don't think it's easy to say what would Bonhoeffer say? I think he does stand as a witness to us today, which is, you know, what what are the where are the places around us where people are being attacked and where people are suffering, you know, what wrongs need, need to be made right and what risks are we going to take um, to step into that space and um, take action as, again, from my point of view, you know, as people of faith. You have this great uh, line in your book about Bonhoeffer. You say, in the face of radical evil, the pacifist pastor made a radical choice. He joined the conspiracy to assassinate Hitler. Many have wondered how he justified the move from peace to violence. There are times when both the no and the yes involve guilt, Dietrich said. Right. I mean, that seems to me like, you know, it's almost like Bonhoeffer there, the radical Lutheran. Like if you're going to sin, sin bold, you know, that gosh, I, that I, I have no, I can't, I can't have clean hands here no matter what no, I do. No, no, absolutely. And, you know, he looked around him and what, what were his options, right? Yeah. To stay silent, to, to step back from this. He knew what, what the Third Reich was. He knew very well. He had inside information, even if other Germans could say they didn't know. Dietrich Bonhoeffer knew what, what, the, what the, the Nazis were up to. So he could either withdraw or stay silent or resist. And um, so, right, that's all. Each, each re- response is problematic. So he chose to act and to resist and, you know, rely on God's grace and forgiveness. But to me, it's, it's, it's a choice I have to admire. You say in the beginning of the book, and I'm assuming that this, these words are somewhere where you can see them right now. Uh, you say that, uh, that Aristotle's words are posted over my desk. It is the mark of an educated mind to be able to entertain a thought without accepting it. As part of the calling of the vintage ministry to do, I mean, it seems that like that's what universities were intended to, are intended to be about. But so often now, it seems that, uh, and you hear this in all sides of the political and cultural spectrum, that, that the, the sort of siloing uh, and the tribalism just just migrates to the university. It's no longer a place at times of exchange and discourse, but just, you know, identity politics, sort of tribal, you know, ide- ideological reaction. I mean, is part of this the Christian calling to get back to acceptance, uh, graciousness, pursuit of the, uh, pursuit of the truth? Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, what I love to create for students is, um, a group, a room, a space where they can come and be themselves and to entertain thoughts without necessarily accepting them. You know, as we were reading today, uh, Kierkegaard to read a few lines from Kierkegaard and sort of be curious, you know, wonder what did he mean? You know, before we have to, identify him as as one thing or the other just try to understand what the other person is saying what they might be thinking um but it takes some trust 
to to have a conversation, I think, on about things that matter, about dangerous topics, fragile topics, you know, to talk about race, to talk about faith, to talk about how to live in the world. You know, if we're going to have a really meaningful conversation, it's going to get messy or it should get messy. Um, And part of that, um, for me, the calling is uh, to welcome what whatever anyone says, Mm -hmm. at least in that moment and ask, you know, if it's something that bothers me to take a breath and ask a little more. And, and try to hear a little more. Uh, I think I'd love Henry Nowen talks about listening as spiritual hospitality. Hmm. Uh, and you know, you're not just waiting to say the next thing while the other person finishes talking, but you're truly listening. You're present. You're receiving whatever that person is saying to you. That is, that's a gift. That's spiritual hospitality. And I think students, faculty, humans right now, Americans, we're all so used to, you know, talking over one another screaming at one another, shutting down, running away. Um, but to stay present and listen with trust and compassion is a huge, huge gift. And I think young adults in particular, you know, they're really struggling to break their faith apart. That's what their work is to do as young people, whether they've grown up in the church or with, with no religion. You know, they're here at the university. They're learning new things in classes. They're in relationships um, they're in maybe religious affiliated groups, all these different voices, all these different perspectives, you know, they're often in a point of transition and upheaval. And so to kind of sit with them and just ask them, ask them big questions, ask them risky questions. That's what they want. They want to talk about big things, but it's, it's very rare that they have that opportunity to, to ask big questions and yet feel the freedom to really explore what they might think. That and that's odd to hear at a university because again one would think that the university would be a place where and that's actually you know what what people used to go to university for. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. I uh, right. We talk about triggers and safe spaces, and I am all for sensitivity. I really am. But I think as people in a university environment, exactly, you want to hear this whole range of ideas, and if even if you don't agree, even if you're offended. Just consider it part of your education, right, to know what these other positions are um, and be able to take that in and integrate that into how you see the world. So, um, yeah, it's a strange it's a strange place to be. You write good. You write something in a chapter about C.S. Lewis. You say that you talk about somebody that was skeptical and not needing to offend you. You have this great sentence. You said, I'm not one to be exasperated by challenges to Christian faith. They come to me unbidden. Now, can you say Can you say more about that, what it means for, for them to come to you unbidden? Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think you can live in the world um, and see suffering in the world or live in your own body and not experience sorrow and grief and anxiety. You know, there's so many difficult realities right in front of our faces that to ask questions about where is God right now? You know, is God good? Um, You know, these principles of the Christian faith of mercy and peace and justice. um, You know, when you see so much evil in front of you and so much suffering in front of you, how could you not ask questions about the Christian faith. And I too, I'm a thinker. I I, I, like, I know the arguments for the existence of God and I know plenty of arguments against God. You know, there are plenty of atheists giving us lots of reasons to not believe. So I don't know. I just, 
maybe it's my age or my my place in the world, but I just have to ask these questions. And I think it's healthy and it's good to acknowledge the questions that we have about about God because it allows us to be real. Um, but I think, you know, what I love about these saints and vintage saints and sinners is that they saw the world in ways that I might not. Um, I don't know if you read, there was an article in the Atlantic magazine. It was a review of Kate Hennessy's book. And um, let me see if I can find this quote. Um, James Parker says, one way to understand the saints, the radiant aberrant beings next to whom the rest of us look so shifty and shoddy is to imagine them as cutting edge physicists. Mm. Their, Their research, if you like, has led them unblinkingly to conclude that reality is not all what or where or who we think it is. He says, saints have penetrated the everyday atomic buzz and seen into the essential structures. They have seen, among other things, that the world is hollowed out and illumined by beams of divine love, that the first shall be last and the last shall be first, and that sanctity, should you desire it, is merely to live in accordance with these elementary facts. Mm. So I love that, you know, all my questions that come to me unbidden, you know, they have these questions too, um, but they could see something, the bigger story, the truer story, the more beautiful story. And so I love them because they help me past my questions, through my questions. Um, they embrace my questions and yet um, they show me some views of reality that I, I don't think I would see on my own. As I was reading your book, this quote came to me from, Thomas Halit, who wrote this great book called Patience with God. It's been a real theological virtuoso for me of late. He talks, he says that he knows of three mutually and profoundly interconnected forms of patience for confronting the absence of God. They are called faith, hope, and love. He says, patience is what I consider to be the main difference between faith and atheism. What atheism, religious fundamentalism, and the enthusiasm and the enthusiasm of a too facile faith have in common is how quickly they can ride roughshed over the mystery we call God. And that is why I find all three approaches equally unacceptable. One must never consider mystery over and done with. Mystery, unlike a mere dilemma, cannot be overcome. One must wait patiently at its threshold and persevere in it, must carry it in one's heart, just as Jesus' mother did, according to the gospel, and allow it to mature there and lead one into maturity. As some, I mean, that seems to me to be some of what's at the heart of your book is this is this getting beyond facile forms of faith, you know, or, or the the sort of kind kinds of religiosity, or a kind of atheism that can't tolerate mystery. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I love the stories of these different people because, to me they show us so many ways of living in the world and so many ways and some pretty eccentric ways of expressing mystery and believing in mystery. I mean, people like Mother Teresa, you know, she couldn't do what she did with a facile way of understanding the world. She had to have, you know, a deep, deep commitment to mystery and to mercy and to Jesus to to continue on with what she, the way she lived her life. Um, or Therese of Lisieux, you know, she's in this monastery, a convent, you know, as a teenager. Uh, and yet she could see the presence of Jesus with her. So I don't know. To me, they, they all these people, Francis of Assisi, Claire, Dorothy Day, Howard Thurman, this infinite variety of people who just wouldn't take the easy way. They wouldn't take the predictable, safe way. They lived lives of pretty extreme commitment. 
um, to this mystery to, to God. And I, it just gives me, to me, a lot of space <laughs> to live my life um, and find mystery or be open and curious about where mystery might be. Have you ever heard of the Creative Mornings Breakfast? No. What it, is that? It's this movement. It started in New York, and, and now it's all over the world, I'm pretty sure. There's one in Philly. There's, they're all over the place. Uh, th- basically, these creatives and entrepreneurs, creative sort of types, they would get together once a month on a Friday and just they would hear, hear like a talk, usually about something about creativity or imagination, and have breakfast and just network and exchange ideas. And on every at every event, you put a name tag on, right? And you put like you know you put Scott or Karen, and then they there's a question, and the question was, what would you do if you weren't afraid? <gasps> and I was thinking yes. as I reminded that is that you talked about Amanda Berry Smith, this 19th century African American woman who that was the driving force of her spiritual quest like what how do i live in the immediate presence of the love of god what would like because she feared just white culture the oppressor i mean she was she felt constricted right yeah and 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 yet god led her through that Mm -hmm. and i love her story because i think this idea of what would you do if you weren't afraid that's a good question but it's also i ask it like what will you do even when you are afraid and mm. as you are afraid, you know, mm. because I think we want to be f- brave. We want to be courageous and that's all good. And we want to put our fear aside. But like Amanda Barry Smith, she was afraid for good reason. Um, very good reason. Um, born into slavery. She was preaching in front of crowds of white people. Uh, she was in India. She preached in the United Kingdom in, in Africa. And she, all through her autobiography, she continually describes sensations of trembling, uh, of being afraid. Uh, and yet she continually goes back to asking God to be present with her. She leans on God and she goes forward. She steps forward. She, she preaches, she acts, she speaks, um, she lives her life. She survives, um, through her fear, not in spite of her fear or without her fear. And I think she teaches a lot to us today about, you know, being, being afraid, that's, that can be part of the human condition. It can be a response to, you know, real threats all around you, but you know, what are you going to do with that? And, uh, you know, will you, will you have the faith that God is present with you to strengthen you? So I, I do, I love her story. Those breakfasts sound fun. I'm going to try that. I, I always say, I'm going to go to the Philly one and I, I keep forgetting, but it, it pops up on my email and I'm going to go one of these mornings. <laughs> Now, now you are someone that it, you, you're a lover of church history. You're it's so funny because you're like somebody says start a Bible study. And you're like I'd feel better doing like historical figures. Most people would be like Bible, okay. I don't know enough about church. <laughs> I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? Gracious conversations characterized by a particular combination of wit, empathy, reflection, and human understanding. If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. 
you can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcasts, projects I've got in the works. Being a Patreon sponsor is really just you being a patron of an art form you enjoy and are passionate about. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David and Winona Babico, Michael Butera, Peter Stegenwald, Samantha Blythe, Sari Graham, Jordan and Danny Morseberger, Josh Redder, Ellis Brazil, and David Zoll. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. Is there any, have there been people that like, I mean, you have a broad cast of characters in the book and from a, a, virtually every era in, in you know, from, from, you know, the patristic era, like St. Augustine and you, know, you talk about Amber, all the way to the 20th century. Are there people that you've tried to connect with? Like, who's the pr- most prominent person you've tried to connect with and just can't get it? You just like, ah, oh, gosh, like, uh, this is dry. I don't get it. Everybody raves about it. Just can't get into it. Well, you know, we had a conversation at dinner last night. This sounds so incredibly nerdy, but Charles, my husband who teaches religion, he, he, he was saying he had this big volume of um, Thomas Aquinas on the table and we don't always talk about theology. So don't, don't misunderstand. But he said, you know, I just like, I've read the Summa and I just, I get it. I see what he's doing, but I just, it's just kind of boring. So I don't read Thomas Aquinas. I appreciate his contributions, but, um, and I see, I see his position, but I haven't brought him into, I haven't brought him to lunch at Vintage. The Summa will be tough. The Summa will be tough at Vintage. Yeah. (laughs) You know, so stuff like that, where it's, I, I can appreciate it. I realize he's building a foundation for the rest of us. And I, I, I love scholastic work, intellectual work, but the people that I connect with are the people with that story, you know, that life story where when you read their words, you can hear their voice. Um, I'll tell you the, 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 the one person I almost didn't put in this book because I really have a problem with him is A.W. Tozer, um, man. So he was born in, uh, 1897. So, you know, lived through the 20th century and was a preacher in Chicago, well-respected Bible teacher. And my grandmother loved him. She would drive to Chicago to hear him preach. So I grew up esteeming him. And I know, uh, for other people kind of in my evangelical subculture, whatever it is, um, Tozer is a figure who's kind of reliable, right? As a Bible teacher. But when I read his biography, after I'd read it, I, I just thought I cannot include this guy. <laughs> I just do not like him. Um, the reason because he he was so spiritual and he was so committed to his ministry, but he really neglected his family. He, he had, I think, six kids and a wife, but he would go into his office. He would change into his prayer pants. <laughs> he, he would, I know. I'm sorry. I don't have not seen the prayer pants, but he really had them. So he put them on. He would lie down on the floor and would pray for hours every day. Well, that's lovely, right? And wonderful. And I can't criticize that. But meanwhile, you know, his children, uh, he never bought a car. He gave away all his royalties to his books. He would take half of his paycheck, just give it back to the church. When he died of a heart attack, um, his wife had no money. I mean, he hadn't left anything behind. 
So, you know, I'm like, wow, as a husband, as a father, he, I just, it just made me crazy to think of living with someone like that. And his wife, I love this part of the story. She married again later to a guy named Leonard. And she said to someone, Aiden, A.W. Tozer, Aiden loved Jesus, but Leonard loves me. And I hope she married for money the second time. <laughs> I hope <laughs> the guy had a little bit of money. Oh, and you know, I, I, but this is where that personal story really challenges sometimes the reverence and even how we read their writings. You think about Martin Luther, right? This is the year of Martin Luther. And yet you read what he wrote about Jews, what he said about Jews, and you just, it's so incredibly horrific that it pushes that question, you know, who can we really respect? Who can we follow? Um, how do we take into account these really serious flaws that that people have, even the people we think of as saints? Um, yeah. And we, we asked that of Thomas Jefferson, too, of course. You know, he owned slaves. You know, people are imperfect. So the more you know about their lives, sometimes the more difficult, the more complex our reactions are. And, uh, is, uh, and that is as it should be, I think. What do you think? Yeah, it's very interesting. I think uh, I, my friend, I'm reading this guy, Paulson, this Lutheran theologian, and, and he's, he's kind of this radical Lutheran. He basically says that Lutheran theology is to destroy everything, not just the bad things in here, but the good things. <laughs> and basically that, that he thinks that like, for most of church history, the, the metaphor has been the exodus, like we're going from someplace uh, bad to someplace better, and, you know, from vice to virtue. And he thinks that the gospel is about not getting us to virtue, but, the, the, but to the grace of Christ. Yeah. And, and so it's Simo Eustace at Peccator, right? And you talk about this in your book, that saints are not, how do you say it? You say that the people you write about are the vintage Christians You've met them in their humanity, you say. They may be called saints, but they are sinners, strugglers, and seekers, too. And I, I think about that. Like, everyone's on the way, right? I mean, the, the, they're, they're only ambiguous disciples. <laughs> oh, it's true. And, you know, you think about John Wesley, right? I love John Wesley because I kind of identify with him. But, you know, he was this earnest, earnest young Christian, you know, preacher's kid who did everything right. He formed this holy club at college and they would, you know, had all these spiritual disciplines. And when he went to, as a missionary to, to, the, to America, to Georgia, things just completely fell apart. And he was he went back home just destroyed. And it was in that place of dis distress and vulnerability and real devastation that he had, you know, this this transformational encounter. You hear about his heart strangely warmed. But I love that the, the ways that that life and experience can really break us apart. And that's when really beautiful things can happen. Um, and that's not required. I mean, there's some of these figures, I think, who 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 were always solid in the faith and solid in themselves. And some of it just seemed easier for them. But again, I think it's that the variety that that gives us all a place to be um, in, in, the, in the, the pilgrimage. And um, so I, I do. I love their stories. There's so many crazy, crazy stories of people, um, of these different people falling and getting up and trying again. You write, you write about some modern people in the book. There's and a lot of them are pre-modern. I'm wondering, what do you think are the things that mark the modern experience of faith that are not going away? 
that we need to figure out. You know, we live in a different world, right? And so some things from Augustine transfer, right? Like the need for grace, you know, uh, the sort of the inner self, it's sort of seeing the inner torture. But like, you know, we don't live in a world where where Neoplatonism is credible as a philosophical right. or we don't live in it, you know. So, I mean, what are what are things that we've got to deal with that we can't be helped as much? Like, there are unique challenges that, that our foreparents in the faith just wouldn't have any idea about how to deal with. Yeah. You know, you think about um, earlier times when Christianity and this view of the universe with God at the top, you know, that was accepted. That was just the framework. That was reality. We we don't live in that uh, with that perspective anymore. Um, and I, I do think Mother Teresa, she comes to mind. You know, she lived until 1997. I think she teaches us uh, that sometimes we do not, be- sometimes we do not feel God's presence. Sometimes we are not intellectually or even emotionally convinced that that God is real and that God is present. I mean, that is, I, I think, for many of us, and I see it with young adults. I'm really focused in my conversations with, and I'm hearing this. You know, that we live in this world of so many possibilities, so many ways of of experiencing reality and understanding reality, and to to include God in the mix. That's one option among many. And Mother Teresa, you know, her story is that she heard the voice of Jesus, like she heard it audibly, and Jesus called her to go into the slums and and serve G- himself, serve Jesus in the face of the poor. And she committed to doing that. And, you know, you, you probably remember her. Her private letters were published after her death. And she describes this ye- decades of the silence of that voice. The voice stopped speaking. And there's yeah, when one. She, when she was becoming up for canonization, yeah. you know, and now, I mean, they always talk about this now, like Saint Augustine, a lot of these who would never be saints now because they, they have, they actually have like a tribunal and they have what's called the devil's advocates. And that's where the phrase comes from. People that come in the Vatican and Christopher Hitchens was one of right. her devil. Like, it was, this is a wicked woman. She's a fanatic and a fraud. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he had all the, but you know, I mean, okay, but look at the woman. She continued to do what she did. She never stopped serving, loving, smiling even. And one, I heard one interpretation of this is which she asked to participate in the sufferings of Christ. And as a person in this era, she experienced suffering as God's silence, God's absence, as, as the temptation to, un, to non-belief and unbelief. And that is more painful and isolation. That is more painful than maybe any physical suffering that Jesus endured. So it's almost like weirdly by asking to participate in God's suffering and then having silence and absence that in fact, that's exactly what she got and what she asked for. And that's what many people I think in our time feel. Uh, and they don't know how to connect with the holy, with the divine. You know, they're in a lonely place or an indifferent place. That's the, I'm not saying that, you know, you can't live a, a, a contented life without an intense relationship with the holy. But I think many people do feel isolated and alone. And that is, that is, that is our reality now. I wonder too, one of the things that I've thought a lot about over the past couple of years through interaction with Jewish friends is, you know, for in Judaism, there's such a, a loose relationship between believing and belonging. And some of my Jewish friends argue it's too loose, but, but like, 
but others are very comfortable with that. And I think in certain forms of Christianity, in mo- it's they're almost fused in a way that like if you voice a doubt, you don't belong and you'll be told. Where most people, I mean, in any given community, right, like 10%, 12% are going to be true believers, just psychologically, 10 or 12% are going to be kind of perpetual skeptics. And then most of us are just somewhere in the middle. It, it seems like we take a temperament and idealize it, you know, and then make everybody try to live that temperament as if you couldn't live an authentic Christian identity and have all sorts of different temperaments. So that's one of the things I like about your book is that you give a full range of the way, the way it means to walk in the world as a Christian. And there's no like one template, like or one temperament. And there's, and that's a beautiful thing. And I wish that we would take that more seriously. I feel like churches would be more merciful places to be if there wasn't this sort of like, template one-size-fits-all way that we expect you to express faith. Absolutely. And I, I think this insistence on intellectual doctrinal belief, you know, that's a, an inheritance of the Western Enlightenment, whatever, you know, that this is our cultural and intellectual heritage, right? I mean, this is what we think you have to do is have right ideas and right beliefs, and that makes you right. Um, but what about the people who act rightly in the world, you know, and maybe they don't think at all about it. Um, you know, why can't we <laughs> include them? Or, you know, they act faithfully in the world. And, and I love Henry Nouwen because I think he has all of these, all of these questions and struggles in his story because he was a true intellectual, great professor who um, struggled with depression, anxiety, you, you know, the longing to be accepted and to be loved. Uh, and he left his academic post to, to, you know, to live in Larsh and care for Adam, who couldn't feed himself, couldn't dress himself. And, you know, what he believed, what he thought, his academic prowess meant nothing to Adam. Adam only needed his love and his care. And that his re- reimagining of what being human is all about really happened in that place where he was a lover and a caregiver. He tells uh, that, that great story. Uh, I think it's in the, in the name of Jesus where he talked about like somebody asked um, like somebody to pass the the meatloaf. He doesn't eat meatloaf. He's a Presbyterian. And then like, he's like, none of my training means anything here. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, I think we just have these ideas of we're so arrogant about our own points of view and what it means to be a Christian, let's say in, like you said, in the church and if we don't see the long centuries of ways of being church or ways of being people of faith or ways of meeting God or being encountered by God, you know, we're missing a lot. We're putting ourselves into a very small space. Um, and it just doesn't have to be like that. You know, you look at Francis of Assisi is another one like that guy was amazing. So his whole deal was to follow Jesus literally like whatever he would do, he just wanted to do what Jesus would do. So what did he do? You know, he had no home. He had no clothes. He had no money because that's what Jesus said. You know, foxes have, what is it? No nest or whatever, <laughs> cave. Um, so he would sleep on the floor or don't worry about money. Don't worry about tomorrow. So he wouldn't collect food for the next day. He wouldn't let the Franciscan brothers soak beans overnight because that was worrying. Um, he still he lived, seemed like a better guy than Tozer. <laughs> he was definitely, I know, right. But he, and he wasn't married. At least he didn't have a family to support. He was just out there. Uh, yeah. Mm. But I, again, I just think, wow, like if we could just be a little more like each of these people, uh, life would be very interesting, uh, far more interesting. And faith would be, I think, a lot more um, 
alive if we could take a little brother Lawrence, you know, and practice this presence of God, mindfulness, um, awareness, so much that we can learn from these people. You know, Augustine says somewhere that, um, he says, the prophet refers to some men saying, when they say to you, you are not our brothers, you are to tell them you are our brothers. Consider whom he intended by these words. And I, I feel like your book is a great invitation to consider as brothers and sisters people that may at first blush seem far off. Um, and yet yeah. they, you realize we see ourselves um, in them, you know, and they in us. And so thank you for, for writing it. Oh, it's been my pleasure. It's so it's so wonderful to share these lunches and these conversations with students in a book uh, and to have you be a part of it. Thank you for for um, talking with me today, Scott. Hey, thank you. The pleasure is all mine. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you like what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you've found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to Karen for coming on the podcast. Check out her book, Vintage Saints and Sinners. And thanks again to you for listening. And until next time, my friends, fare thee well.